Amen. Well, if you're joining us for the first time this morning, we're in the middle of a series of, uh, called Relation Slips, and it's dealing with sex and sexuality. I wasn't pausing for effect. I'm just trying to turn this light off here. And uh, we are in our fifth week, I believe it is, of six weeks. Next week is the last week. Uh, you won't want to miss. You've been following along. If you have missed, you can go online or a podcast, and you can... Uh, you can check it out. <clears throat> this morning we were dealing with the topic of pornography. I've entitled it Pornography's Ploy, a very deliberate strategy, and I'll talk more next week, uh, of the enemy that is used not just to bring people into bondage and addiction, but even in Christian homes, Christian marriages, the purpose is to undermine your authority uh, to operate as kingdom people in all the Lord has for us, as we saw in the video. I encourage you to come watch the video. It's, it's very faith-building and what the Lord uh, wants to do among his people. Will you bow your hearts and just consciously open your heart to the Holy Spirit this morning. Ask him to come and speak to you. Though we're dealing with this topic, it relates to many different levels, um, as we'll see in just a few moments. But the Lord wants to bring complete freedom wherever we may be. So let's just open our heart. Heavenly Father, I just thank you that you're here this morning because you love us, but you're also here to do business by your Holy Spirit and by your word. And we give ourselves to you this morning, Lord. Our heart's desire is not just to sit through church, we want to, Lord, encounter you. We want your truth to penetrate our heart. We want new dimensions of freedom and of joy, of hope and strength and truth and ministry. And so, Lord, again, we just pray in Jesus' name that, that you would have our hearts and minds for this period of time and that you'd be free to do the work that you've intended to do today. Amen. Amen. How many heard about the false missile alert down in Hawaii a couple weeks ago? Anybody hear about that? Some guy pushed the wrong button, I guess. Thankfully, it wasn't a missile button, but he pushed the wrong button. There was an article by Josh Butler of the uh, Huff Post, and this is what he wrote. He said, for nearly 40, 40 terrifying minutes, many residents of Hawaii thought they were under attack after a false missile alert was sent to phones statewide. Multiple stories have emerged as to what people did in the time between the first alert and its later cancellation. Some sought shelter, and some sent farewells to loved ones. One thing that most Hawaiians did not do was look at pornography. On Wednesday, adult website Pornhub released data, we have it on the slide here, about how traffic to its website from Hawaii changed in the minutes from the first alert to the second. As the initial warning pinged phones in the state shortly after 8 a.m. local time, traffic to the porn site plunged by nearly 60% almost immediately. Traffic kept falling as news of the alert spread, and by 8.23 a.m., it was down a whopping 77%. But around, the time that news, around that time, news started filtering through that the missile alert was a mistake. And as the false alarm was confirmed, traffic to the porn site climbed steadily. By 9.01 a.m., page views were nearly 50% above average. In 2015, uh, George Barner Research Study <clears throat> he did a study of frequent pornography users, those who use it daily, weekly, or monthly, and he found this. 72% of non-Christian men view porn on a regular basis. 41% of men who call themselves Christians, Christian men, uh, view pornography on a regular basis. 36% of non-Christian women view porn, and 13% of Christian women view porn on a regular basis. I'll give you a few more porn stats here. 90% of children ages 8 to 16 have viewed porn. The largest consumers of pornography are 12 to 17-year-old boys. Porn sites comprise 12% of the Internet. Every second, 28,000 people view pornography. Every minute, $185,000 is spent on pornography. Barna also found that many young people today... Uh, view not recycling as more immoral than pornography. <clears throat> pornography, many people say, is just a simple, uh, is a safety valve that's harmless. It just relieves sexual urges, which is, of course, preferable to a person violently acting out whatever their fantasies may be against somebody else. That's how many people view it. But if that was true, my question would be, why is it that 77% of viewers decide it might not be the best thing to be watching when you're about to meet your maker. It's because there's an inherent sense that there's something wrong. There's an inherent sense of shame, as we mentioned last time, and oftentimes what is promised as an opportunity for physical release, the immediate feeling afterward is rejection. There's a sense that there's something that is dysfunctional in that, something that, of course, is not fulfilling, something that is wrong. I want to begin this morning by talking about the effects of pornog pornography 
on the human brain. Uh, but to do that, we have to understand what pornography is. And most of us, I think, probably assume that we know what it is. But let me just give you a definition by Merriam-Webster's definition. Pornography is books or pictures that depict erotic behavior intended to cause sexual excitement. <clears throat> That's one definition. That's probably what most of us think when we think of pornography. Let me give you an, an idea of what God thinks pornography is and how he views it according to scriptures. Uh, in the Bible, in the New Testament, of course, was written in the Greek language initially, and the Greek word that is used is pornea, from which we get our English word, of course, pornography. But in the Bible, the Greek word pornea is translated in either of two words. It's translated either as fornication or is translated as sexual immorality. So it covers sex outside of marriage, sex before marriage, uh, extramarital sex, whatever it may be, outside of the marriage context. That's what the Bible calls pornea. Interestingly, the word pornea is also derived from the word porneo, which means to sell off. I thought that was rather interesting when I came across that in, the, in, the, uh, in, in Strong's Concordance, to sell off, as in selling, uh, uh, selling, giving away something that belongs to you, selling off uh, a piece of you, selling off your wholeness, selling off your purity, your integrity. And so the idea of pornography is not just a harmless exchange, but there actually is an exchange. There's something I'm giving up, giving away. It's not just something that I'm receiving. In 1 Corinthians 6, uh, the Apostle Paul said this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, and there's that word pornos, nor idolaters, and idolatry, of course, has to do with anything that we set up as an idol in our life that we worship, that we strive after. One of the things Paul is very clear in the last days, he said that people will be lovers of what? Pleasure rather than lovers of God. And so your idol can be pleasure, it can be money, it can be sex, it can be yourself, whatever it is. Uh, he says, uh, idolaters will not inherit the kingdom, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality will inherit the kingdom of God. Then he says this, which is so wonderful. Paul says, and some of you were once like that. In fact, all of us here this morning, in some way, were one of these things. But thank God it doesn't have to stop there. He says, you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'll talk more about that a little bit later. To the believers in Galatia, Paul wrote in chapter 5, now the works of the flesh, they are evident. They're obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the likes of these. Now, by Merriam-Webster's definition of pornography, the fact is that about 72% of non-Christian men are viewing. He says about 41% of, of, of Christian men view it on a regular basis, daily, weekly, monthly, whatever. But I want to I suggest to you that that number is very low. I would suggest to you that in the body of Christ, that probably about 90% of people view pornography. Probably most of us here this morning uh, have watched pornography somewhere over this past week. And you're saying, Pastor Paul, what in the world are you talking about? I don't watch pornography. Well, let me describe it this way. <clears throat> According to the definition, porneia, of being sexual immorality, I would suggest the vast majority, majority of people in the body of Christ consume a regular diet of sexual immorality on the television. Anybody agree? In there somewhere? A large variety? It doesn't mean we necessarily even think about it, but you consider a lot of the programs today, predominantly what you'll watch today, you'll have some kind of common law relationship, you'll have adulterous relationships, you'll have homosexual characters, many of them are cloaked in comedies and sitcoms, you'll have sex scenes, sometimes under the, under the sheets, sometimes not, usually under the sheets, but you know exactly what is going on. And basically what you have is this sexual morality, immorality flowing into our minds and into our homes. I want to give you a, maybe a little bit of a homework uh, for this week. It just came to mind this week, and I, I shared it with the board. They said, we should, we should try that. I want to ask, ask you to do this. I have a little sample here on the, on the screen, but I want you to just, when you go home, take a piece of paper and make a simple, tab, a simple table, maybe you know, by hand or on your computer, and along the top, I want you to list four or five, whichever one's come to mind, from 1 Corinthians 6 or Galatians 5, somewhere else in the Scripture, list on the top what Scripture calls the works of the flesh, the basically the things that work against purity in your heart and mind. And on the left side, I want you to be honest, and I want you to jot down four or five programs that you watch pretty faithfully, that you enjoy, 
There may be programs that you watch and you kind of go, oh, that's, that's awful. Oh, that's terrible. And you leave it on and you keep watching it. Um, but I want you to list those. And then each time you watch it for the course of the week, or maybe just one night you're watching a few of these shows, in the columns, I want you to check off the number of times that any of these things from the scriptures are promoted in the show. Does that make sense? You might surprise yourself. You might sit down and think, well, I think what I watch is pretty innocuous. But if you honestly put that chart before you, you begin to check off and you will see the number of times that these things are either openly promoted or they're hinted at, they're suggested, they're laughed at, whatever it may be. But don't fool yourself. There's a message that's being communicated to you. There's a message that's being poured into your mind that actually has an effect on you, as we'll, we'll see in just a moment. So that's just a little bit of homework that you and your spouse may want to do some romantic night when you're watching TV. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, Pastor, are we just supposed to live under a rock? I mean, you know, we're exposed to all this stuff. You know, it's kind of like people watch things sometimes, there's a lot of cursing going on, and they'll say, well, you hear that all the time at work. Yeah, but see, there's a difference, I believe. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to grow in the image of Christ. And what that means is that as we mature in our walk with Christ, as He becomes more real to us, becomes more sovereign in different areas of our life, we have less and less interest in the corrupt and empty things that our culture promotes. Isn't that true? If you really love Christ, right, if you're groaning in love for Christ, you're going to find a diminishing love for the things that you used to go after, used to pursue, because Christ and what he has for you becomes much more fulfilling. But here's the point. It is one thing to be exposed to corruption, to immorality, to you know, the jokes around the cooler, the, the office talk. I mean, we're in the world. We can't help that. It's one thing to be exposed to that. But it is altogether a different thing for the people of God to voluntarily be entertained by that. Do you follow me? There's a difference. I can't help being exposed to a lot of stuff. But if I choose to consume it, if I choose to eat it, if I choose to make that my entertainment, then I need to have a reality check. Jesus has set us free, Paul says in Philippians, that we might pursue what is true and honorable and pure and lovely. He says, we have received, John says, an anointing that remains in us. There is an anointing. The Holy Spirit who lives in us. He wants to live and minister through us. And friends, we have to protect that anointing. We have to covet and protect the presence of God in our lives. I don't know how many times I talk to Christians, and I, the same thing can happen to me sometimes. You talk to Christians, they get so frustrated with themselves because when they really needed the Lord, when they really needed power, when they really needed faith, when they really needed to step up and see God do something, it didn't happen. And they beat themselves up. And I tell you why it doesn't happen, because we are not superstitious people. We're called to be people of faith. What that means is we walk with Christ. We don't just kind of throw one up and live the way we want. And God, when I need you, that's superstition. That's not faith. The Lord wants us to walk and protect that anointing so that when things come our way, we're ready and able and we have the authority to move as the Lord leads us. Hollywood, as we know, is a cesspool today and it dulls your spiritual senses and it robs you of clarity and it robs you of confidence in your walk with God. Now, what I found interesting in some of my research is what actually physically happens to the brain in this area of sexuality and related to pornography. Uh, Dr. William Struthers has a book called Wired for Intimacy, and he says that pornography actually reshapes your brain on a microscopic level, but there's a reshaping that is going on, and it actually reshapes the way your brain functions, and then in turn, it affects your relationships and it affects your life. There is a chemical called dopamine that probably some of you are familiar You've heard that term before. And dopamine, is, it's like a chemical messenger. And what it does is it brings messages, communicates messages from one cell to the next. It travels along the synapses of the brain, goes from one cell to the next, and it bumps up against the receptors in the brain, and it stimulates the brain. And so in the area of our sexuality, let's say, for example, in the area of pornography, what happens is the dopamine is released. It identifies this action as pleasurable. It sends that message to the brain. And through constant use of pornography, what has happened, the, the, the neurologists tell us, is that literally, physically, a new pathway, a new road is being shaped in your brain. 
So when you are looking for pleasure, when you're looking for relief, a distraction, whatever it may be, your brain remembers the dopamine is released and the dopamine says to the brain cells, remember where you got that thrill last time. Remember where you got that pleasure last time and it cuts along that same path and it drives you toward that same habit. Now, what's interesting as well is that in a healthy marriage relationship, this drive for pleasure is actually what brings couples together. It brings us together again and again, and it reinforces our bond of love for one another through sexual intimacy. But with pornography, the effect is totally different. When dopamine is released through the constant use of pornography, it gives the brain, researchers say, an unnatural high that actually wears down the brain receptors. And it leaves the person wanting more, but unable to achieve satisfaction, and so they become desensitized. Now, according to Dr. Struthers, as this downward spiral of desensitization continues with the repeated use of pornography, he says the frontal area, the frontal cortex of the brain, which is responsible for morality, for problem solving, for self-control, it literally erodes away, and get this, and the user becomes a slave to the thoughts and a slave to sexual activity. But what was really interesting, I read a number of articles on this topic, what was really interesting is that when sex is used for intimacy between a husband and wife in a committed relationship, instead of destroying the prefrontal cortex of the brain, sex actually strengthens it. It's almost as if God designed the brain to know the difference. God designed the brain to recognize healthy sexual intimacy that brings strength and to recognize detrimental activity that works against you. And as it works against you, the purpose, of course, hopefully, is to bring you to a place of repentance, to bring you a place of turning from it that you might actually pursue wholesome relationships. James describes that downward spiral in these terms in chapter 1. He says, people are tempted... When their own evil desire leads them away and what? Traps them. Because see, here's the problem. In our culture today, everything is an addiction. Now, please understand me. I believe there are such things as addictions. The Bible calls them bondages, okay? But see, the problem with just calling something an addiction is in our culture, what we're hearing is, oh, it's not my fault. You follow me? You see, an addiction is kind of like something, well, you know, I either have the, the, the gene for that, whatever the case may be. And so it kind of takes the responsibility off of me. Whereas if I understand it's a bondage, and if I understand how God shows us how a bondage or an addiction is established, then I also understand with God's help, there can be a breaking of the bondage, there can be a reversal of the curse, and there can be freedom. And of course, there are many wonderful organizations that help with addiction and and have some success. But sometimes the semantics takes the responsibility off of me if I can just project and say, well, it's an addiction. You know, now it's, uh, oh, I can't remember what it was now, some of the Hollywood stars, sexaholics or sexaholics, whatever it's called, you know, kind of thing. And and it's kind of treated as if, well, you must have a gene that, that leads you that way. Well, James says, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, no, that's not why. He says you're tempted when your own evil desires lead you away and trap you. Then he says, this desire leads to sin, and then sin what? Sin grows, and it brings death. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 4, they have become what? Callous, right? That's that idea of being desensitized, and have what? Given themselves up to sensuality. Greedy to practice or lusting to practice every kind of impurity. So what Paul wants us to understand, what the Holy Spirit wants us to understand, is addiction is a real thing. Bondage is a real thing. But you've got to understand the role you are playing. You've got to understand that when you give yourself to certain things, you will become a slave to those things. Let's look at a couple of the effects of pornography. One effect of pornography, of course, is it it degrades marriages and it destroys family. 
What pornography essentially does, of course, is it, it, it shows actors performing almost any kind of sexual act that a person can, can, can imagine. And so what happens is the user begins to expect their spouse to be more adventurous or more experimental than they used to be. But it's often frustrating for the user because their spouse cannot possibly fulfill their porn-induced fantasies. And these fantasies oftentimes will lead to affairs, they'll lead to uh, divorce, they'll lead to brokenness in that relationship, or if the spouse finds out or if the spouse suspects that the other spouse is using pornography, they begin to feel a sense of disgust for their partner, and they begin to pull away, and a healthy sexual relationship begins to erode, leads to greater frustration, and so on. I just want to say this, and I apologize, I'm kind of reading because... Um, I timed myself this morning. I realized I got to stick to my notes just to, just to get this stuff in. Uh, but you'll be glad to know that I'm just over halfway or halfway through. If you're here this morning and you feel pressured, you can be a man, you can be a woman, different personalities, different backgrounds, different baggage. It can go both ways, though it is more common for men. Again, that 40% to 13% ratio, at least in the body of Christ. But if you're feeling uh, pressure to participate in certain sex acts that you feel are pornographic, I want you to understand as your pastor this morning that you have the God-given right to refuse and the God-given right to abstain from any intercourse with your partner until that spirit is dealt with and that spirit is broken and that you are able to return to a sense of normalcy in your marriage because the very nature of pornography is that it is a demonic lust and the thing with demonic lust, it will never be satisfied. It will just become increasingly more deviant. It will never be satisfied. The only way it can be satisfied, you might say, is to be repented of, renounced, and cast out. You see, pornography is not just about pleasure. It's very much about pleasure because just the way we're wired and, and the brain and so on seeking pleasure. But hear me, pornography is also about power. We all know from secular research that when we talk about the, the, the crime of rape, for example, it's not just the physical act of having intercourse with somebody. What is it? It's a power crime, isn't it? It's a power. It's a dominating power crime. And in the same way, pornography is the same because it does this. The use of pornography is saying attitudinally, number one, to God, God, you will not dictate how I fulfill my desires near my sexuality. I will fulfill those desires my way, when I want, on my terms, not yours. Because God in His Word lovingly gives instruction as to how we can have be healthy sexually as a, as, a, as a single person and obviously as a married couple as well. So it's kind of flaunting in God's face. I will do what I want when I want because I have the resource to do that. But hear me, folks. It is also a power trip over your spouse because pornography is saying to your spouse, if you will not meet my sexual needs, whether real or imagined, get this, I don't need you. I don't need you. In fact, I've found something better. You see, so it's about power. It's not just about pleasure. And the problem with that, of course, is what you introduce into the relationship and also the fact that you will not come away fulfilled as you will with a loving relationship with a person that you respect and that you love deeply and you give yourself to. In the case of single men, I just want to throw this in here, research has found that the more single men expose themselves to pornography, the less likely they are to search for genuine intimacy in a committed relationship of marriage. And what that is doing, they are saying it is actually shrinking the marriage pool for women in our culture. Because more and more men are just less interested in making the commitment because there was a time in the good old days, you might say, there was a time if you wanted to have sex, you got married. Right? You made the commitment. Okay, Paul warns in 2 Timothy, we touched on this last week, he said, run from anything that stimulates youthful lusts. We mentioned last week how sexual sin in our youth can remain with us for years to come. It'll be struggles for years to come. And, and hear me, single person, whatever age you may be, if you are viewing pornography, please don't believe the lie that I'll stop when I get married. The devil wants you to believe that. Oh, it's okay now, and then when I get married, of course, I'll be with a real person, we'll have sex, it'll be fine. I promise you it will not stop with marriage. 
you will carry it into your marriage. Why? Because when you get married, you'll realize your spouse is not the people you've been watching all this time. And you have this whole fantasy in your brain of what you think sexuality is. And instantly, you are setting yourself up for frustration and disappointment. Because let me lay in a little bit of a secret. In the porn industry, those attractive men and women, they are actors. They're actors. What they do is acting. When the camera's off, they all go for a sandwich or a beer. It's, it's just acting. And so the devil takes all that theatrics, all that fantasy, and says that's normal. And let me tell you this as well. He also does that through our viewing of television. You find for me today, I can't even think of one myself, you find for me a normal couple who have a loving, normal, romantic relationship. Like I said last week, nine times out of ten, you watch TV and somebody has a date and somebody just you know, wants to have sex with somebody, what do they do? They're breaking the apartment door down. Their clothes are being ripped off in the hallway. They're slamming each other against the wall. Oh, you haven't seen that. <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, my bad. I've heard. That's when you kind of go click. That's fantasy. That's pornography. That's not real. Even that stuff, my friends, is not innocuous because what is it doing? Especially for men, but sometimes for women. It's saying, man, I wish my spouse was more like that. I wish they were more affectionate, more aggressive, more whatever the case may be. They're actors. That is not where you find fulfillment in a relationship. You find fulfillment in a person you're committed to that you go through life together in. And when you come together, you love each other, you respect each other. That's your fulfillment. You see, our society says that your fulfillment is found in the novelty of the sex act. So here's all the crazy stuff you need to do to add spice to your marriage. You know how you add spice to your marriage? Grow deep with each other. Pray together, walk through life together, spend time with each other, get to know each other, genuinely care for the person as more than just someone that you have a sex act with. Get to know them and love them, walk with them, and I promise you, you will connect at a level that is so deep and so fulfilling, you don't need the chandeliers and the mirrors and all that foolishness because your eyes are on the person, the person that you love, that God has given to you. And friends, it's deeper than anything Hollywood would dare tell you. If Hollywood is so brilliant, then just tell me, why are all the marriages screwed up? Why? If they know what they're doing, if they know how it works, of course they don't. It's a lie, and it's a fantasy. And that's why the Bible says to bring every thought captive, every imagination. What are you saying? He's saying take every fantasy, everything else that the devil that with his web creates and says this is true, bring it all down, cast it all down, because it is a lie. And it will just frustrate you and it will lead you to relational failure in some way or another. Let me just say this as well. I might as well. I'm on a roll, I guess. You may want to lock the doors. I'm just kidding. But I want to say this. In case you're here this morning as a Christian couple and you believe pornography in your bedroom is okay. You say, well, pastor, we're adults. We're consenting. We both agree. We both enjoy it. Let me tell you something. I've even heard Christians say this. They say, well, Pastor, the Bible says that the marriage bed is undefiled. So that means you can't defile it. I mean, you're a husband and a wife. It kind of sounds like, you know, the great Christian philosopher, Pierre Elliott Trudeau. You know, remember those days? Well, the government has no business in the bedrooms of the, you know, yes, it does. It has business in what gets into those bedrooms because it doesn't stay in those bedrooms. It comes into society. And we have to protect society. We have to protect our children. We have to protect our culture. But in any case, I hear Christians say, well, Pastor, the Bible says the marriage bed is undefiled, so that means that as a consenting couple, we can do whatever we want in the bedroom. No, that's the lie. Let me give you the literal translation of Hebrews 13 for it. He says this. He says, let the marriage bed, what? Be undefiled. That's a whole lot different. Let it be undefiled. What's he saying? Keep sexual immorality out of your bedroom. And please understand this. If you bring pornography into your bedroom, do you think for a moment that it stays in your bedroom? You see, when you bring pornography into your home, into your bedroom, it doesn't just come through the internet. It doesn't just come on a DVD or whatever fashion it may be. It comes with a host of demons attached to it. And those demons don't stay confined to your bedroom. Those demons who've been welcomed into your home have free reign in your home. 
They go into your children's bedrooms. They have permission to begin to mess with your children's minds. They begin to be able to tempt and to draw. You see, because as Christians, we understand that we have authority in our home. We can protect our home. Our home can be a safe place. It can be a safe place spiritually as well. Now, please understand this. If you've dealt with pornography in the past, whether as a couple or as an individual, and you're saying, oh, God, I can't believe, Pastor, I've done that. Okay, it can be broken. The power of Jesus Christ is able to break whatever the enemy has been allowed to do in our home. He can be broken through repentance. He can be identified. He can be cast out. Our homes can be cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So don't live under the lie of constant condemnation. If you say, oh, what have I done? You know, if you haven't dealt with it, go home and deal with it prayerfully. But the Lord is able to do that. But he cannot do that as long as we voluntarily invite the enemy into our homes. So it degrades our marriages. Second, this is quicker. Number two, pornography desensitizes users to cruelty. Along with physically changing your brain, pornography actually changes the way that you think. The way you think about things. In the late 1980s, Dr. Dolph Zillman uh, conducted a study involving three groups of men and women over a six-week period. He had 80 young men, 80 young women, 160, broke them into three groups. And to the first group, over a six-week period, they said, we want you to view five hours of media. To the one group, the first group, they said, we want you to watch 36 pornographic films over six weeks, uh, five hours a week. To the second group, the middle group, they said, we want you to watch 18 pornographic films, 18 regular movies. To the third group, over six weeks, no porn pornography whatsoever, just regular movies. Now, at the end, they asked them specific questions related to the questions they asked at first to see how their views might have changed. And what they found fascinating was they did. One particular question they asked, for example, was there was a news story of a young woman who was hitchhiking. She was picked up by a driver, a male driver, who raped her and then let her go. The question was, what kind of prison sentence should this man receive? So of the 20 or 30 in each group, they all kind of gave their answers. It was averaged out for each group. The group that watched no pornography at all, they averaged out saying that man should receive at least eight years of incarceration for what he did. For the group that watched 36 weeks of pornography, their answer was he should be incarcerated for about four years. Less than half. And here's the conclusion that Dr. Zillman made. He said, both males and females, after viewing this material, judged the female rape victim to be less injured less worthy, and more responsible for her own plight. Notice what he's saying is that pornography changes our values. And, and again, that's why the foolishness of what you do in your bedroom doesn't matter. Yes, it does matter. Because it changes how you think. It changes how you view people, how you view victims, whatever the case may be in that area. And then thirdly, pornography eroticizes children. Uh, Dr. Dan Al uh, Allender, he's a prominent Christian professor. You can see him on YouTube, has some great talks. He specializes in trauma and abuse therapy. In a 2013 documentary called Rape for Profit, he said this, As pornography pushes the limits, portraying women as younger and younger, and as pop culture uh, adultifies children. Let me just stop there for a second. The adultifying of our children. Moms and dads, let your little girls be little girls. Okay? And the boys too. Let them have a childhood. Don't let them grow up too fast. I know as parents we think, oh, my kids are growing so fast. It's true. But sometimes we can promote that. You know, we can have 12-year-olds, 8-year-olds, whatever the case may be, and the, the stuff we're letting them wear, the, the, I don't know, you might as well walk around naked, some of the tight slacks or the tight, whatever it is, yoga pants, whatever. They're, they're everywhere. I mean, you can barely look somewhere. I'm, I can't, nobody comes to mind when I say this, but if I had a girl, she would not be wearing those. I can tell you that. But we need to stop adultifying our children. And we need to allow them to be children. He says culture is doing that. In his TV shows and advertising, our culture is showing signs of a pedophilic drift. Porn drives demand, uh, porn drives demand for trafficking. The entry age into prostitution is now 12 to 13 years of age. The research says it's not just because pimps are allowing them to come in. It's because of the increased demand from sexual clients to have sex with children from pornography. That's why it's demanding. That's why it's growing. Pornography is not just between my computer and me. My viewing actually drives the demand 
for sex trafficking. And speaking of children, our own children are online and on social media at a much younger age, and therefore they're exposed to pornography as well. We saw some of the stats earlier. The average age of children first viewing pornography used to be 11 to 13 years of age. Uh, Don Hawkins, ex executive director for the National Center of Sexual Exploitation, she believes the average age today is closer to eight years. She's even seen younger children struggle, including a growing number of very young girls. She said this, there are quite a lot of six-year-olds I've been introduced to who are dealing with addiction to porn. Now, if you'd like some information, I don't have time to go into it, but I just brought a little website up here. You'll see the website uh, URL on the top right corner, uh, cpyu.org. It's the Center for Parent Youth Understanding. cpyu.org, if you want to jot that down, remember those four letters. As parents, if you want to go on and understand a bit more about the issue and uh, how to maybe talk to the kids or things you can do for their protection, uh, that'll give you some ideas. Vanessa and I were watching a, uh, <clears throat> a nature program last week, and it was rather fascinating. I think the Lord just uh, got our attention with it for this purpose. But it was about a, a, a beetle larva, and it's, it's a fascinating little creature because what it does is it actually entices animals to eat it. And so it's, it's just sitting there minding its own business. You'll see a frog or a toad or a salamander come along, and it'll start to, you know, wiggle its antenna and its tail kind of things to make sure the animal sees it. And the frog will, and the salamander will snap its tongue out, grab it, and then as soon as it does, we have a picture here, as soon as it grabs it, that larva turns around, sinks its hooked jaws into the animal, and begins to secrete enzymes that literally dissolve the animal from the inside out. And within a couple of hours, the frog or the salamander is just a pile of bones and skin. Isn't that amazing? It's actually there saying, come on, don't I look good? Yeah, I kind of picture it with a sombrero and whatever, you know. Hey. But that's what it does. And when I saw that, I thought, man, that is the picture of pornography. Not just these illicit magazines, books, websites. I'm talking television after 7 o'clock nowadays, whatever it may be. That is the appeal. What does it do? It sits there in front of us. It tries to get your eye. Your brain tells you it's too good to pass up. But a whole time, it's just stringing you along, drawing you close enough to sink its hooks into you, and then it begins to eat away at you until you're just a shell of what God intends you to be. But as I said earlier, thanks be to God, that doesn't have to be the end of the story. That's not where it has to stay. That's not where you have to be in whatever your addiction or bondage may be this morning, whether it's pornography, whether it's drugs, alcohol, whatever it may be, it's still the same principle, same dynamics in the brain oftentimes. What did Jesus say in John 8? He said, very truly I tell you, Everyone who sins is what? Oh, sorry, I really saw this one. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Jesus wasn't saying this to condemn. He said, I didn't come to condemn the world. I came to set it free. He said, I just want you to know, if you're messing with sin, you've got to understand this is not innocuous. It's not innocent. It's not no casualty type thing. You are a slave to sin. I want you to see that. I want you to see what you are, your condition. Don't be deceived. You become a slave. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to the family forever. That's what the Lord is saying. is Listen, I don't want you to be a slave. I want you to be a son. Because when you're a son, there comes clarity to your life. There comes confidence to your life. You know who you are. You know what you're about. You know why you're here. You've got a message to tell others. God will use you to set others free. And that's what Jesus said. He, if the Son sets you free, you will what? Be free. Indeed, I'm here to tell you, my friends, Jesus can set you free. He really can. And you can be completely free. You can be so, I mean, I've experienced freedom at some points in my life over the years where I literally almost had to look for the sin again. Not that I was going after, but I, I couldn't believe how free I was. I couldn't believe that it wasn't even a thought anymore, that the temptation wasn't there anymore. I, I couldn't believe it. It's kind of like, is this just me or did that really happen? Because <laughs> isn't this supposed to drag out forever? And it was just freedom. The Lord brought freedom, and he can do that this morning. But 
How does that happen? Let me give you this real quick. Number one, confession and repentance. Corinthians, the kind of sorrow God wants makes people change their hearts and lives. This leads to salvation, and you cannot be sorry for that. But the kind of sorrow the world has brings death. I'm going to say this as kind as I can, but let me tell you this as your pastor of over 30 years ministry. Friends, you are going to do what you want to do. Isn't that true? It doesn't matter what I preach. It doesn't matter what God says to you. At the end of the day, if you like what you're doing, you're going to do it. If you don't have a reason to stop, if you haven't come to your senses yet, if you haven't hurt enough people, if you haven't had enough, done enough damage, if you haven't had enough self-disgust, whatever, you're just going to keep doing it. And the reason you keep doing it is because you love what you're doing. I don't care what you say. I'm no different than you. That's human nature. I do it because I love doing it. I know I'm hurting other people. I know I'm manipulating other people. But at the end of the day, I love it. I want it. I want to have it. I want that feeling. I go to it. That's my default. If that's where you are, then that's where you might stay. You don't have to, but you've got to come to the place of understanding that it's the, cho- it's the result of choices that I've made that have established patterns. You see, if we're only sorry for the consequence of our sin, we're not repentant. We still love our sin. We still choose it over things that are more important. Self-disgust is not repentance. But when we finally see our sin for what it is, and we hate it, then God is ready to forgive us, and he's ready to set us free. When we honestly come to the place and say, I hate what this is doing, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it, then God's ready to begin to do business with us. That's what, that's what David said. I never quite understood years ago what Psalm 51 meant, verse 4. You know, David commits this sin with Bathsheba and all that, the fallout of that, and then in his prayer he says, Lord, against you only have I sinned. I'm thinking, what are you talking about? You had a man killed. You got a woman, you know, on and on it goes. What David understood is something we don't understand. You see, if this is right, this is going to be right. Lord, the reason I'm doing this is because this isn't where it's supposed to be. The reason I did this is because I love this more than I love you. Forgive me, Lord. Restore to me the joy of your salvation because I hate this so much because of what I'm losing with you. I choose you. That's a decision that only we can make. 1 John, say it with me. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And finally, we we need an overcoming struggle. It's one thing to repent, but you've got to understand, my friends, there's a battle as well. The Bible says in Philippians, for God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases Him. That doesn't mean that every desire we ever have that He just takes away from our sinful nature. I still struggle at times because my old nature is still with me until I step into heaven. But here's the key. My old nature does not have to control me. It is there, but it doesn't have to dominate my life if I bring every area of my life into submission to God's revealed truth. As long as I don't feed the old man, it's there, but he just limps along because he's powerless. I'm not feeding him. But when I feed him, he grows stronger. And there are some things that God might deliver me from instantly because he wants to fast-track me in my growth, but there are still other areas where he leads me to struggle. Why in the world would he do that? Because, listen, friends, he wants you to learn how to overcome. He wants you to learn how to have victory. He wants you to learn how to grow. You will never grow in freedom by just sitting back and passively accepting whatever it is the devil has brought your way. God wants to use your struggle to teach you, number one, that the fear of the Lord is a life-giving fountain. It offers escape from the snares of death. You see, faith is not just obeying God when you feel like it. It's not just obeying God when you understand. Okay, God, give me the whole picture. I'll weigh it out. Sure, I'll do that. Faith is when you actually don't always understand. And you may not even like it, but you know God is true and you know his heart. And you say, I'm going to do that, Lord. And that's how you begin to grow. I think I'll maybe cut a note here. If I am, let me know, and I'll change. Also, God will use struggle to teach you compassion. He says, do not judge others. You will not be judged. For you will be treated the way you treat others. The standard you use in the judging is the standard by which you will be judged. If the Lord took all of our struggles, you know what would happen? 
and I see it happen sometimes for those who get set free, we become proud. We become condescending toward others who are having struggles. Uh, as Pastor Christian mentioned, he went through a short season of tremendous pain and discomfort with his surgery. I think it's safe to say that after two weeks of that, Pastor Christian has come away with a new level of understanding, a new level of compassion. Wouldn't you agree? A new level of empathy for folks who've gone through some difficult things. God uses our struggles that way. Now, Jesus isn't saying that you shouldn't judge right from wrong as far as opinions and beliefs. We are to do that. But he says what you're not to do is to be harsh or superior to those who struggle. One more scripture, Galatians 6. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Here's the point. It is our own struggles that produce humility. The truth is, in the body of Christ, we are just one struggler helping another struggler. That's who we are. In fact, you want to know what hypocrisy is? Hypocrisy is not saying one thing and doing the opposite. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 7. The thing I want to do, I don't. The thing I know I shouldn't do, I do. Right? That's part of our struggle, just in life. What I believe hypocrisy is, is when I see somebody who is struggling, and I know that I can relate to them. It may not be the exact same thing, but I can tell you this, my friend. Whatever you're struggling with, I can relate to struggle. I can relate to some struggles over the years, okay? So when I see you struggling, I have an opportunity to be used by God to come alongside you, even if I don't understand perfectly what you're going through, but be able to say this, hey, brother, I understand struggle, and I'll walk with you, and I'll be a strength for you. I'll be an encouragement. Whatever you need to do, we'll do it together. What does that do? It gives the person hope. You see, the reason Jesus was so angry at the religious leaders and the hypocrites of his day is because he saw people who had burdens, who had struggles, just like the religious people had but wouldn't admit it. They were too proud, and they wouldn't lift a finger to help. And so hypocrisy is when I see somebody with a struggle, and I pretend I've got it all together. Or I pretend that I can't relate. And what happens? That person feels condemned or judged or goes away feeling like, I guess there's no hope when I could have stepped in and say, hi, I, I've struggled with this, but you know what? I've struggled with this. If I can be honest with you, transparent, I've struggled with this. And you know what? The Lord has brought freedom. And he could do it for you too. We are all strugglers helping each other. Musicians, will you come? We're going to participate in around the Lord's table in just a moment. And uh, we're going to share. That's what the table of the Lord is about. We're going to share in the victory the Lord has won for every single one of us. The Son of God came for this purpose. What was it? The Bible says to destroy the devil's works. Right? Will you say the scripture with me? The Son of God came for this purpose. Okay? This. Say this. This. He came for this purpose. That little video clip we saw during the offering, that's why he came. To seek out and save those who are lost. To bring healing to the broken. To bring deliverance to the captive. That's why I came. I didn't come to start church. I didn't come to start a one-hour ceremony or two-hour ceremony and then go back to the work as if it's not real. I came to give you the dynamic of the Holy Spirit that wherever you go, whatever things I've done, you will do too as you walk among the brokenness and the pain and the sin and the bondage. I've given you gifts of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk more in the, in the spring. I've given you gifts. I've given you power. I've given you ability that wherever you go, you can minister freedom and life and salvation. That's what it's about. For this purpose I came to this world. He's not messing around. And I want to encourage you this morning, my friends. He's not messing around this morning. If you're here with any kind of bondage, any kind of addiction, whatever you want to call it, or you're just sitting here this morning saying, Pastor, you know what? I can kind of relate because, you know, I don't watch porn, but, I, I, you know, some of the stuff you're talking about on TV, some of my favorite characters, whatever, the lifestyle they're promoting, I recognize that's not right. I recognize I need to get stuff cleaned out of my mind, out of my life, because I want to walk in the anointing. I want to protect the presence of God in my life, the anointing in my life. I'm, I'm, just, I'm tired of not having the power and the anointing available. When I know there's a ministry need, I'm tired of turning my back and walking away because I don't feel confident. I don't feel qualified to minister. I'm Anybody tired of that? I'm tired of that. I want to have the anointing and the freedom and the fulfillment that comes with seeing the life of Christ flow through me in whatever dimension it may be. That's what we want to walk in. That's what the Lord has for us. We're going to worship Jesus for just a couple of minutes, no more than probably 10 minutes. Sorry, Lord, I had to say that. No more than 10 minutes, Lord, okay? That's all we got this morning. Sorry, I know you're worried that there's angels all around you 24-7, but we got about 10 minutes. We're going to worship the Lord before we come to communion. While we worship the Lord, the altar is open. 
If you just want to come and do business, don't worry that somebody's going to think, oh, you're watching porn, you're at the altar. That's not what it's about. It can be any area of your heart that you're honest enough to say, Lord, I'm just done with it. I just, I'm just, I just, I just want that freedom. I want that cleansing. I, just, I want to step into a new dimension of what you have for me. I want to invite you to come or wherever you may be. We're just going to worship Jesus. Let me tell you this. I shared this on Wednesday night. When we worship Jesus, you know what we're guilty of a lot of times in, in evangelical circles, church circles? It's kind of like we come to church, we, we, all of us, and we, we sit through the worship. We have great musicians, great music, and, and during the worship, we feel this tingle. We feel good. Worship made us feel good. And how many times do we leave the service, you know, thinking in our minds, we say this, that was a great worship service. You know why you feel the tingle? The tingle is the presence of Jesus. You know what that means? It means that Jesus is here. Jesus is here. He is literally here to touch you. He is literally here to set you free. He is literally here to cleanse your mind. He is literally here to restore your relationship, your family, your home. He is here. You know what we're going to start doing? Rather than leaving church and saying, that was a wonderful worship service, wouldn't it be something if every Sunday morning we left church and anybody we could find, we said to them, you're not going to believe this. I was actually in the same room as God. That's where I was this morning. Because, friends, that is the truth. You're in the same room as God. He is here. He doesn't want to be just a feeling. He wants to be the person who touches you and holds you. He wants to be the person who breaks sin off your life. He wants to be the person who tears the claws that's in your mind that the devil's been using for years. He's here to do that. And he will do that if you will reach out and say, Jesus, I want you. I want you. I want everything you are. I want to become like you. I want to mature in you. I'm so tired of giving myself to the things the world promotes, attitudes, activity, whatever it may be. Lord, I'm yours. I'm sick of it. I've had times like that over the years. I've had times like that being here at Glad Toddy's. Nobody else in the sanctuary. Just for an hour or two, calling to God, saying, God, I'm sick of where I am right now. Lord, I just need a fresh baptism of your Holy Spirit. I just need to abandon afresh. Come. And the Lord has never failed me. He's never failed me. But I'll tell you this. When he sets you free, You've got to start walking in your freedom. You've got to understand there's a struggle. There's a battle because the devil wants you back. And you've got to decide whether or not you're going to keep coming to the Lord and keep holding on tight until the complete freedom comes and you walk in that. You'll have struggles in other areas, but he'll bring freedom in the thing that you're addressing when he says the time is right to do that. So we're just going to, you can sit or stand. If you need to change your position, we're just going to sing two songs. And feel free, Chantel, I know you have a couple, you go with that. They're going to sing a couple songs. I want to encourage you to bow your head. If you want to come for just a couple minutes, the, the altar is open. Just stepping out and stepping out. That's why we come to the altar. Just a way of us saying, I'm stepping out from where I am. Literally stepping out from where I am. I'm saying, Lord, I'm breaking from that. That's back there. Bang. Let's deal. And so the altar is open. You may have to come as a couple. I encourage you to do so. We're just going to worship. Let's just take these next 10 minutes. We're going to worship the Lord. Allow the Holy Spirit, will you, to deal with your heart. Allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you right now where you are. Get serious with the Lord. He's here. Get serious with him. Hallelujah. Bless you.